Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. The papacy seems really tame today. And a lot of so-called Protestants, or, or maybe even more specifically those in Anabaptistic traditions, like the more mainline churches, the Methodists, the Charismatics and Pentecostals, those groups cozy up pretty well with, they, they don't really see much of an issue with the Pope. They see him as something still of, yeah, a, a key figure for Christianity as a whole. The relationships between Protestants and Rome um, seem to be improved quite a lot. But we remember that at the end of the 19th century, I mean, um, there was the declaration that uh, the Pope is tradition himself. The Pope is the church. He is that living embodiment. He is its head and ruler from their perspective. What the Pope says goes. And now, just as, as a personal aspect of it, I have a father-in-law who is a Roman Catholic deacon, which in their system, a deacon is not like our Protestant or Reformed deacons. A deacon is basically a junior priest. So he can do almost everything that a priest does except for the consecration of transubstantiation. He can't do sacraments. He can give homilies. He can basically, he can go and take the Eucharist to people. He has uh, a lot of ability to do a lot of functions in a parish. With some things that have been happening with the papacy and with the, the Roman church the past couple of years under Pope Francis, you ask my father-in-law his opinion and he'll begrudgingly just say, well, he's the pope and kind of brush it under the rug. It's not even so much as a indifference, like, oh, I don't really care what's happening in the church. That's not quite it. It's a deference. It, it is an actual deference of, well, he can make those decisions because he's the pope. Yeah. I mean, and really, if you want to be a Catholic, if you want to be in communion with Rome, this is the price you pay. This is what you have to accept, even if your pope is going off the rails. And we're going to look at some things here about how the current pope seems to be going off the rails. He's the pope. And unless you want to be a heretic and a schismatic, according to the Roman communion, you have to fall in line and you have to accept and believe what the Pope says. Um, just a note on the Pope real quick. The present Pope, which there's also a little bit of a strange occurrence here in our day and period where there's two living Popes. Well, not anymore. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> uh, there, there was until recently because... Uh, Benedict XVI did something that hadn't that occurred for almost a thousand years mm -hmm. um, in that he basically left office. I don't, I don't remember exactly the term for it, but he left the office of Pope while he was still living. He retired from it. He resigned. Yeah, it was, I think they yeah. do resignation. Yeah, and so <laughs> he continued to live. He had a, I believe he had an apartment in the Vatican. He continued to write, although... Uh, some of his later works, which are pro more controversial and more critical of his successor, didn't appear until after his death. Um, but yeah, you had two living popes, and really, they were embodiments of very different visions and ideas and mm. conceptions mm -hmm. of the Catholic Church, because uh, 
Benedict XVI was a theologian. He was very conservative. Um, he was uh, very much a uh, representative of, of an older idea and vision of the church, whereas Francis, he uh, rose in South America, was heavily influenced by liberation theology, which emerged in Latin America in the 20th century before finding inroads other places in America and such. Um, so Francis has brought a much more modernist and progressive agenda uh, to the papacy in his time. That would be another really interesting thing. Uh, we always have, you know, great ideas and great, you know, things that pop up into mind that we'll likely never be able to do. But the nature of these different orders, these different concepts and mentalities uh, claimed within this unified church, the so-called, you know, universal Roman church, uh, an oxymoron, you have really these pretty starkly different approaches of leadership. Let's note them also in their, their real names. You know, and going from uh, Benedict uh, Ratzinger's rule, if, or his reign as Pope, to, you know, Jorge Bergoglio, you have almost like a whiplash. But the change mm -hmm. didn't happen overnight. We have to wonder and ask, what sort of political maneuvering was there behind the scenes in going from a incredibly conservative Roman Catholic, a traditional Roman Catholic, or largely at least one who is very conservative and in line with the Council of the Vatican II, and moving to this progressive shift in this, this Roman church. It is a night and day difference. The present Pope is a, uh, a Jesuit, <laughs> the mm. most liberal of all the orders, uh, and, and also just a fast note, the Jesuits of today are very different. They're not the same order of the Jesuits from the uh, 16th century counter-reformation. They were originally created as basically the Pope's stormtroopers as an answer to the Reformation. They were the counter-reformer experts. Today, the Jesuits are Basically, anything that will lead anyone into a, a Marxist captivity. Just as one example, besides the Pope himself, a name that comes up a lot in these discussions is James Martin. He's a priest, and he's a Jesuit, and he's very, very actively in America advocating for progressive causes, LGBT inclusion, things of the sort. This takes us directly to the matter here. Under Ratzinger, uh, there was a... a Fairly still conservative church, but a big change when he resigned. There's been some incremental changes over the years. Uh, one thing that was a, a liberalizing movement uh, several years ago, uh, let me see, this would be about 2016, I believe it was, where basically Francis permitted for those who were divorcees in the Roman Catholic communion to be able to receive the Eucharist at the discretion of a bishop. If you want to go and you're a divorcee that, you know, wasn't granted an annulment, basically, of marriage in their system, uh, you divorced on non-biblical grounds or whatever, you wanted to take the Eucharist at your parish, your congregation that you're a part of, then you could appeal and get permission from the bishop who could then grant you the Eucharist. This is an enormous thing if you're familiar at all with Roman Catholic theology. Divorce is 
virtually an unforgivable sin. Right. One layer to why is that, and I think we mentioned this earlier, but the Roman Catholic Church t- treats marriage as a sacrament. Mm-hmm. And so they, they treat it as a an indissoluble union uh, that essentially, once you're married, there is no divorce, really, in any meaningful way. I've I've heard some Catholic commentators say that essentially divorce is a fiction. It doesn't exist. That would be a more traditional Catholic approach to it. But yeah, we've seen that Francis has uh, backed up the bus a bit on on that issue. You just put it really well, though, um, on that's such a no-no um, that it's a fiction. Putting it in those terms, if you can hear it then... Imagine how big of a shockwave that is when the so-called hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of years of the church and canon law in their perception, you know, from the beginning of the church, from Peter, now there's this huge shift in doctrine and what the church has been teaching about marriage this whole time and divorce, okay? So just, just imagine that in their system. Well, now, a couple years ago, just to put it in a nutshell— not my gift, uh, admittedly, but to, to try to put it in the nutshell. A couple of years ago, the idea was thrown around to have basically groups in certain bishopric areas, in, in certain metropolitan areas, to have lay people come together and uh, have a theological discussion um, on things going on in the church. What would they like to see changed? Uh, what are some issues going on, some pressing things that you, what are some things the church does well and doesn't do well and so on and so forth. So you're getting these these various congregants going and attending these meetings and, and being able to give their feedback. And then uh, that data would be collected uh, and this would be sent up the road from the bishoprics, from a diocese to the archbishops, the archdiocese, and then over into uh, eventually make its way up the hierarchy to the uh, towards the curia, the the papal seat. Okay, to the C, the, the papal administration itself in the Vatican. This was the process of a, of a couple of years going back into uh, 2021 or so, I think it was. But the data was being collected. And the, the intention was then to have what they called a synod on synodicalism. How do you make decisions in the church? How should church meetings function and what sort of things should take place there? Well, they were grabbing these this data from people and looking to put it up all the way to the council, to the conciliar highest seat of the administration of Rome under the Pope. Um, so the council of bishops and archbishops, the, the cardinals and so on, they can uh, come together and review this information. One of the findings they said, they, they, they reportedly say, um, and it doesn't matter if this is true or not, we'll see in a moment, but some of the sentiments occurring in these meetings and making their way up were the inclusion of LGBT members uh, in the church. And then also um, the more friendly posture towards women in the church. So one of the huge desires in the Roman Catholic Church the past decade or longer really is for there to be women priests. Well, you have the old conservatives that have been a roadblock in these kind of processes LGBT members. Uh, so, well, now divorcees uh, can receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, but not LGBT people. So, these sentiments were going up to the papacy. And they were saying that, you know, they want to listen to the church. A couple years ago, and when I first started reading these reports of these meetings going on, I, I told Andrew off the bat, do you see what's, what's occurring here? 
They're, they're going to start pointing to the members. This is a classic move of, of the Roman Catholic Church, actually. When you need to tighten control in kind of a conservative-ish manner, when you need to tighten control, they will point on one end to the Pope uh, and to the archbishops and, or to the Pope himself and say, that is the church. That is the true ruling spirit of the church. That's where all the authority lies. And we have to follow and listen to that. On the other end, they'll point to pacify people. Sometimes they'll point to the congregants themselves, the laity, and they'll say, that's the true church there. That's it. That's where they, that's where and why we do all this. This is a classic move for centuries. Okay. So they have two directions that they can go in how they want to say, how they want to justify things. I was talking with Andrew about this at the time and, and as well as my wife and saying, right now, they're getting the voice of the laity, and they're going to tell you that it is among the population, it is among the laity that the true church is found. They're going to say that the Holy Spirit is working through the convictions and the consciences of the individual members of the church. And what they say then has to be followed as the living spirit of the church's direction. They would be pointing at congregants saying the Holy Spirit is moving the church in this way. Who are we to reject that? But when you make appeals to the Holy Spirit's movement amongst the general population of the church, when you're making that the basis for the direction of your church that appeals to tradition as a source of authority for it, uh, that is equal to or greater than scripture, you point to the spirit and the sentiments in the church. How do you prove that that's what everybody's saying? How do you prove that's where the Spirit's directing everyone in the first place? But how do you prove that everyone's in agreement? You can come up and imagine and, and come up with any statistical number you want of saying, oh, 70% of the church wants LGBT members without that actually being true. And you can say, oh, it was the Holy Spirit of the people uh, moving in the people that, that did that. It doesn't have to be verified. And you basically just opened the door to justifying anything in the church. And so now we can look and see where this is led. Um, so we've had some recent developments. Well, one of those is in Germany. There's been a much more greater effort by the bishops in Germany to even openly defy what the church has established concerning including LGBT members. Um, if I remember correctly, there has actually been some blessings of homosexual unions going on in Germany mm -hmm. in open defiance of the church's teachings on the subject. Recently, only about a month ago, Pope Francis came out and said that transgender persons are now potentially eligible to serve as godparents and to be witnesses at church weddings, which, again, remember, marriage is a sacrament in the Roman church. So uh, this is serious business now. Now, what's fascinating is as this is going on, it's not that it's completely going on without resistance. And actually, a lot of the resistance has come from Catholic bishops and figures in America. And so another thing that's been happening recently is that uh, the Pope has essentially been punishing American bishops who have opposed him in these matters, who have taken more uh, historical and conservative stances than Francis has been taken. Uh, for instance, Cardinal Raymond Burke lost his apartment and his pension in the Vatican for opposing Francis. 
Uh, but anyway, there, there's a couple other figures in the American Roman Catholic Church that Francis has basically sanctioned for opposing him in some of these new moves. There was recently, like a year or two ago, for instance, attempts made by priests and local bishops to withhold the sacraments from uh, politicians in America who openly support abortion. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I believe it was Nancy Pelosi. And Biden. And Biden, yeah, Joe Biden, the president, also, they're professing Roman Catholics. I think Pelosi was the first, and then it happened to Biden mm -hmm. as well, where their local priests, local bishops wanted to withhold the sacrament, and they basically appealed to Francis. In fact, I think for Biden, he actually went over to the Vatican and received mass from Francis, even as his local bishop was saying, we're not going to give you the sacrament anymore because you support abortion. That's a bold move. <laughs> yeah. Just going to go over your head, I guess. <laughs> but how classic is that, though? Let's put that back towards like these medieval terms. That sounds like something out of the medieval history books. Yep. It's a classic appeal to the papacy and a show that the papacy has a direct political tie and authority in these spiritual matters. Their canon laws can be basically just thrown out the window if the Pope uh, says so. But yeah, and then you have a Pope strong arming the papacy. It's so back. Yep. <laughs> the, the issues may be different, but the methods of wielding power and of determining what the church believes and practices, they're pretty much the same. Now, you had mentioned with the transgenders that they're able to sponsor baptism. Uh, did you mention that they can also themselves receive baptism? Um, I did not mention that, but yeah, I do believe that was part of so, it So yeah, well. and this is, again, remember Andrew, when he brought it up, had said that, that this is a sacrament. For the Roman Catholics, baptism is not just a sacrament that initiates you into the church— as a member, but it also is for the remission of sins that it virtually it erases original sin. Mm -hmm. Now, part of what Cardinal Burke, who was put under punishment uh, with the removal of his retirement benefits, Francis actually removed Burke from his uh, position from an active position in the, in the church several years ago. He was uh, appointed by Ratzinger. He's a conservative <laughs> for this reason. He, he was uh, more in line with that. Well, uh, he was one of Ratzinger's guys. Francis doesn't want him uh, as basically a member of his, uh, what's called, cabinet. Um, Burke had asked the question, what do you do with a transgender who, who, upon baptism, should be receiving a Christian name by their tradition, right? Whatever your name, you should also, you would also be receiving a, a Christian baptized name, um, like Michael or, you know, Gregory or something, right? A Christian name of sorts from history. Well... Burke was saying, according to canon law, they should be getting baptized with a, a name that comports to their biological gender, their birth gender, their real gender. <laughs> so he was, he was asking some of these questions, basically. And uh, the Pope was like, oh, we don't do that. Leave it up to the local bishops in the first place to do this. The Pope then held a luncheon for a large number of what he said, like the poor and the destitute in the church. This also included transgenders, including transgender prostitutes. Um, just, uh, what was this, two weeks ago now? Yeah, wasn't that long ago. Obviously, Jesus ate at table with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with sinners, and the Pharisees mm -hmm. were riled up at this. Is Francis doing the same thing? Well, would seem not, given an account that, yes, Jesus would meet with these people, but he'd also tell them to go and sin no more. And there's the rub. <laughs> Francis is clearly moving in the direction of, uh, we're gonna let you in. 
but keep on sinning in the ways you are. I mean, they wouldn't even go that far because he wouldn't call it sin any longer, perhaps. It's affirmation. So yeah, that really is the rub. Um, What you're seeing here is this institution of the papacy and the man who currently holds it. (laughs) He is a law unto himself, and he is a power unto himself. And so if he wants to decide that the Catholic Church is on board with LGBT and abortion and all of that and is going to uh, allow... Uh, people who do those things and procure those things, uh, membership and privileges within the church. What's the church going to do about it? There's nothing they really can do about it. And we can even see that those who would dissent, uh, they're going to be punished. I mean, really, at the end of the day, what do you call a Roman Catholic who defies the Pope? <laughs> you call him a Protestant. <laughs> a, pro- a protester. <laughs> because that's, that's what it is. Um, if you're going to break from the Pope because of the way their church is... To break from the Pope is to break from the church. Yeah. I think it's important to say here, a lot of the appeal of Roman Catholicism to people in our day, and we even hear about people who convert from various forms of Protestantism to Roman Catholicism, a lot of the appeal seems to be that the Roman Catholic Church is ancient Mm -hmm. and historical and goes all the way back to the time of Christ. Well, you heard in our historical discussion a little earlier, a lot of... uh, Things that put the lie to that. Um, But then there's also the appeal of, well, we're unified. We're one holy Catholic apostolic church and that we're all unified together. And yet, if you look at these recent developments, it's very clear that the Roman Catholic Church is not united. On one hand, you've got, for instance, these Jesuits, these LGBT affirming progressives, uh, liberation theologians, Marxists, all of that. And on the other side, you have these American bishops who are trying to push back and resist, and yet they're being punished for their pushback and resistance. And you have a pope who seems much more inclined to side with the former than the latter, himself being a Jesuit, himself being a product of Latin American liberation theology. Like, this church isn't unified. Mm -hmm. The Roman Catholic Church's Catholicity, its unity, is a myth. It's an illusion. This is clearly a deeply divided organization and is becoming more fractured and divided all the time. Actually, let's let's put a qualifier there. There is a unity, but not in terms of unity that matters, what you're saying, really. Not a true unity by biblical or confessional grounds, but it's a unity centered around a person. Yeah, there is an external and structural unity centering on this one person, the Pope. But it's certainly not a doctrinal, biblical, theological unity. And that's a problem. We actually missed one of our stories, and I think it is worth mentioning. The Pope made some recent comments about the church needs to resist Mm -hmm. being masculine, that the church needs to embrace femininity. When? Why? Well, that's a great question now, isn't it? He's actually made an appeal uh, several years ago that he says there's a feminine distinction in the church. And he, he actually had stated... The church is woman, W-O-M-A-N. The church is woman, and if we do not understand who women, uh, W-O-M-E-N, are, uh, what the theology of a woman is, we will never understand what the church is. So the church is woman, and if we do not understand who women are and what the theology of a woman is, we will never understand what the church is. Which is also interesting. I wonder how that's going to square with the LGBTQ. But, uh, or sorry, with the trans, with the trans in there. What is a woman? What is a, exactly. <laughs> so you want to give us the theology of a woman, but what, what is a woman? Uh, you're going to let the trans come in. He, he additionally said, 
this issue in figuring out this theology is demasculinizing the church. He says, it's not solved in a ministerial way, which raises a question of what he actually means here. Just in way of comparison, in terms of Protestant theology uh, and Reformed Presbyterian theology in particular, we say that the church's authority is ministerial not magisterial, that it is a ministerial mm-hmm. authority. It's a pastoral application based on the overall authority, the all-encompassing authority of Scripture as the foundation and final rule and authority. So to just note that he's saying that this is not solved in a pastoral element, in a practical executionary element, a ministerial way it's a magisterial change that he's looking at. Okay, he, he said, repeating his belief, uh, continuing this, this quote, repeating his belief in the concept in the church that there is a Petrin, there is a Peter principle, and a Marian principle. In other words, that there's two ways of exercising or manifesting the church's power or the church's ruling. There is a male power and a female power. There are different roles that women and men play in the church. But how is that to be defined? Well, it's defined, as we said, magisterially. But remember, scripture isn't the only magisterial authority. It has to be defined magisterially by proclamation of the church's head, either through an appeal to, hey, the council has said it or the pope has said it, therefore, this is how it is. Or you point to the laity, and say the Holy Spirit's moving in the people, there's clearly a Marian principle, a feminine principle in this day and age. We have to follow what she is saying over here. Just pick up on his language, the way he speaks about these things. You can debate this, he says, but the two principles are there. So he's just stating it flat out. There just are a Petrin and Marian dimensions of the church. He's creating a distinction in the one body of the church, according to a a male and female concept. (laughs) Yep, which is going to open the door for all kinds of fun and excitement later down the road, as there seems to be this more uh, egalitarian thrust, not just in all denominations and churches, but even now particularly coming for the Roman communion as well. And again, what Andrew said of, uh, remember what's behind this spirit that he's speaking of. It's a liberation theology. It's a progressive Marxist cultural theology through the tradition that he's trained with. The hermeneutics of experience. Uh, yes, actually, that's funny. There's another article I was reading this morning that I brought up. This is from the americamagazine.org titled, Pope Francis has challenged theologians, but are we bold enough to respond? An article by Akbankianmehe e Orobetor. Uh, pardon me if I, I'm guarantee I butchered that, but. A Jesuit. A Jesuit. <laughs> he's a Jesuit serving at the Jesuit Catholic School of Theology. He follows in the liberation tradition. Long story short, he says what Andrew just said, that it's a hermeneutic of experience. Well, he says basically what Francis is teaching. He says, if schools and faculties of theology uh, imagined themselves as a cultural laboratory, what would their faculty teach like? What would be the profile of their students? Seen in this light... Theology isn't an isolated, self-absorbed discipline. Theological engagement bridges 
disciplinary boundaries and collapses silos to create an unbounded sphere. Word salad. In this space, theology takes its place not as a medieval queen of the sciences, but as a partner in a web of disciplinary relationships, communities, and networks animated by a singular goal of transforming, now quoting Francis, the conditions in which men and women live daily. What did Andrew just say? Experiences. But this is Francis now. The conditions in which men and women live daily in different geographical, social, and cultural environments. And there's the Marxism. <laughs> there's those hermeneutics of experience. It's uh, it, it is not merely enough for there to be objective truth, for there to be divine revelation. It'll hit you differently. It'll matter to you differently, depending on your sex, your skin color, your sexual orientation or gender identity. And that all of that, all of that is key and fundamental to our theology. What, what's really interesting, too, about what you just read there is... That kind of language, I mean, it's very similar to the kind of language you'll see in HR departments mm. and non-governmental organizations mm -hmm. and universities and stuff that have embraced this, you know, woke and Marxist and liberationist ideology. The problem is we're seeing it now within the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it's not that we're surprised to hear things like this, but the where we're hearing this now is where it starts to get a bit wild. The grounds for uh, getting to this point have been laid for quite a while, actually even prior to Vatican II. They are trying to do this whole ecumenical embrace diversity thing from the beginning uh, to bring others in uh, and say, hey, we're not an exclusive organization. We're for everyone. We are the people's church. Even Ratzinger, he was a conservative. He was seen as a staunch Orthodox Roman Catholic. In reality, though, uh, well, one has to ask what that what that really is. Uh, that would have to be a Vatican I or even a 19th century and prior Roman Catholic. But I won't go into the whole detail of this. But there's been a slow burn of liberalism in uh, Roman Catholic theology, heavily influenced by uh, Henry de Lubac and uh, Karl Rahner theologies. Uh, even uh, the non-Catholic, even uh, uh, Karl Barth uh, would place some influence uh, by the 40s. Uh, Ratzinger was, was best friends with a theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar. Von Balthasar had a, a magnum opus, this, this great work of theology, his, his, his principal work of basically reimagining theology away from a cold, dead, intellectual, academic exercise. This is much what, like what we read a moment ago in saying that, you know, the, the author of this other article was quoting from this Jesuit. He was saying, theology isn't an isolated, self-absorbed discipline. It shouldn't be taken its place as a queen of the sciences, but experience. Hans Urs von Balthasar came up with a, basically a method that he would call a, a theological drama, a theodrama. In applying the concepts of a Hegel, of a dialectical way of speaking, employing a dualistic principle to use the concept of arts and life experienced through art as a metaphor to doing life. He wanted to use a non-traditional 
way of doing theology. Rather than talking about, you know, uh, logical categories, uh, using an Aristotelian system or a, you know, doing things like, say, Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica. Instead of doing it in those traditional academic scholastic terms, he wanted to remold theology using the metaphor of arts, using a grand play, a drama. The theology is a dramatic experience. Okay, that was already in the mode in the 50s. And this is the best friend of Pope Benedict. Which when you embrace that kind of approach to theology basically throws the door wide open for you to mold and change your theology into whatever you want it to be. Yeah, and th- that's exactly what happens. And then you combine that with the power, the unlimited power vested in the papacy, and, well, buckle up, friends, because it's going to get wild. <laughs> the papacy is so back. <laughs> so back. <laughs> or maybe it's so over. We're going to see. Yeah, so keep... <laughs> So when you see things come up on the news or whatever, uh, or in your feed regarding the papacy, do keep an eye on it, I would say. Just just watch. Watch what sort of developments come up now. Yeah, because the brakes are burning quick. <laughs> or just be Protestant. That's, that's I mean, the better idea. I mean, you should be Protestant. If you're listening, there's a good you chance if are. you're listening to us, you already are. <laughs> but um, it is interesting to uh, watch what's going on in Rome and see how well like i said it's gonna get wild well that's about everything that we have at this point on this topic maybe the pope will arise in another discussion on another episode or something you know yeah i'm sure he will there's a lot of topics we have done on our show up to this point where there's more developments and maybe we Mm -hmm. need to go back and spend some more time so satan we probably will well satan always satan's always uh, ai been some (laughs) New and crazy developments there. Uh, Transgenderism is always, you know, producing new man-made horrors beyond our comprehension. Yeah. We've been talking about this for a while, kind of doing like a uh, a checkup. Like a roundup. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we'll (laughs) see. Um, So anyway, this has been Once for All Delivered. Again, I am Andrew Smith. And here with Caleb Castro, and we thank you for joining us for our long march through the history and current issues in the papacy. Uh, If you have any questions, you can email us, ofadpodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media. If you are a tradcath on the internet and you're triggered, fight me, bro. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Um, or just message your questions yeah Protestants aren't so scary yeah unless we are (laughs) be afraid (laughs) anyway so yep that's our show (laughs) 50 sign off phrase that's right and take it Heidi etc thank you for listening to this episode for the latest news and updates visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.